0: Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Charlene.
0: And we're back. We've had a slightly longer than planned hiatus, and there wasn't a hiatus planned at all, but it happened. Um, But we're back now. Yay! This week we're going to be talking about Angela Carter's 1979 short story collection, The Bloody Chamber. Before we get into that, you can follow us on social media, you can find the links in our show notes, along with an email address where you can send us any questions, queries or suggestions. Also, if you can leave us any ratings or reviews wherever you listen, it helps other people to find the show. So this is the first time we're doing a short story collection. I think it's going to be a lot bit different, just because there's quite a few different stories that come at things from some different angles. I think we're at risk of a slightly more meandering conversation than a couple of our more recent ones, but we'll see how it goes. So obviously we'll be spoiling the entire collection of stories, we'll drop any other spoiler warnings and the plentiful content warnings in right here. Hello! Not too much in the way of spoilers this week. We talk a little bit about Birds of Prey in relation to feminism and just some of the stuff we talked about last week. It did occur to me that we gave a spoiler warning for the collection, but also this is a collection based on fairy tales, so I guess there's only so much spoilering we could do to those.
1: As far as content warnings, we do mention the way that the short stories talk about sex, death, rape, and necrophilia. So... You know, some pretty disturbing topics come up. We do not discuss much of anything in particular detail, though. I think that's it.
0: Okay, and back to the past.
1: Welcome back. So how would you summarize this short story collection?
0: We're not going to go into a detailed synopsis of every story in the book, because that would just be every story in the book. So uh, the collection as a whole is a feminist retelling of uh, a whole bunch of fairy tales um, written in the late 70s. That sort of uses magical realism to look at a lot of gender, class, and capitalist dynamics through sex and animals. It's uh niche.
1: It's very weird. And often disturbing.
0: A little bit. A little bit. As you heard in our content moments.
1: The eponymous one is a retelling of Bluebeard. So could at least give a little bit of a idea of how that one departs from the traditional fairy tale. Sure, go for
0: it. I'm not actually sure about the traditional fairy tale part actually. I don't know how the original goes.
2: Um, I think it's from like the fourteen hundreds or something. Yes. Um, isn't it the fourteen hundreds? Probably. A little bit of fairy tales probably. a uh, French folktale.
1: First published in sixteen ninety seven. Which means it was probably being told for quite a while before that. But anyway.
0: But I don't know the story of it.
1: Oh, you don't know the story of Bluebeard?
0: No, that's what I was saying. Oh really? Uh, I, like I, I've heard like a vague allusion to it in another work, but I don't actually know how the story is really good.
1: Okay, well the bones of it are definitely the same in the Angela Carter version. So a young woman is engaged to marry this very wealthy noble guy. The what kind of noble person he is, I think, might be a little bit different in different tellings. But I think he's usually like a duke or something like that, which I think he is in this version. And the girl is usually, like, beautiful from a good family, but a good family that's kind of poor. And that's why she marries this guy, because for financial security and status, etc. And the new husband, like, immediately, very soon after their wedding, is going to go away for, like, a long trip and gives her... ...all the keys to everywhere in the estate and says, like, she can open whatever she wants except for this one, you know, she can't go to this one small room opened by this one specific key. It's a privacy thing and show of her trust and her loyalty and her ability to obey him as a wife, etc., all that kind of stuff. And it's really a test of obedience, basically. The new wife is always a very curious person, and she always goes and checks out the room... Sometimes she waits a while, but um, she always opens it to find that it's full of the corpses of her husband's previous wives. Sometimes it's just their heads, um, I think. I think it's often their heads. Opening the door stains the key. This is a common part of the story. And, like, no matter how much the bride tries to clean it, it won't come off. So then, when the husband gets back, he can immediately tell. And then he is like, oh, well, I can't trust you. You know, you clearly don't actually love and obey me so and then he kills her uh well he tries to because this is usually like the last wife and like she gets away or something like that so but it's that's pretty much what happens in this story except in this one the bride's mother comes to her rescue and kills the duke and the duke has murdered his wives in different ways um, and displayed their bodies in different ways and one of them is in an Iron Maiden that's leaking blood, which is why it's called the Bloody Chamber. I feel like that was a very long thing. No, yeah, Yeah. Um. So I, I think the important differences here is that usually a man comes and rescues the woman or she just gets away, I think. I haven't read a standard telling of Bluebeard in a long time. Um, maybe I should have in preparation for this. Um, but If we're
0: wrong, email us. Yeah,
1: but in, in other versions, certainly, like, the bride's mother doesn't come to the rescue brandishing a pistol like a badass, like, which happens at the end of this particular version. On horseback, on, through the sea. Yeah, on, horse, on horseback at low tide, like, across, like, a, a ford. So, yeah. it's pretty cool. And, like, they establish at the beginning of Bloody Chamber that the bride's mother is a confirmed badass, like, from her youth. It is it so, is
0: foreshadowed quite heavily.
1: Yeah. It's like, this woman, total badass, who doesn't really understand why her daughter is marrying some rich guy that she doesn't really know that well. <laughs> and is like, are you sure? I mean, I know money, sure, but are you sure? <laughs> but yeah, so the bride ends up also being helped by a blind piano tuner and marries him.
0: Yeah. Cool. So, with all that in mind, where do you want to begin?
1: You suggested that we... Read the short story collection for the podcast. What made it stand out to you as a good candidate for discussion in this forum?
0: Well, we'd recently been doing Birds of Prey, Mm -hmm. which is very much a uh, strong feminist message of people who have historically been somewhat subjugated by men in various ways, breaking out against that. And that sort of made me think about this collection in some of the ways that it subverts those expectations of the old stories so that it's more of a thing about female power at times i hadn't read it in a decade or so so i'd forgotten some of the finer details i think it's i don't think each and every story puts forward a clear notion of female power but i think most of the stories are a discussion of power and gender and class i think that's fair so, I think that's one I think that's a good place for us to start is just looking at how the power dynamics are portrayed throughout this series of short stories mm-hmm. and how some of those different ones play out. I think that's sort of the consuming topic of this. A lot of things are tied into it. A lot of the other subjects that we've talked about looking at, I think serve to talk about that conversation of power in one way or another and different kinds of power.
2: Mhm I think that's true.
0: So with that in mind, um, I think we should probably start off with how sex is used in this collection.
1: Yeah, we were talking about it before in planning for this podcast, but I think it's significant that all of the sex in the short stories are exploring some form of power dynamic and sometimes that power dynamic isn't even between the people having sex the other characters aren't involved in that as well in the sex itself being a show of power or a refutation of power so there's definitely some circumstances where it's a more traditional more traditionally explored idea of like you know a man oppressing a woman through either coercive or, like, expected sex, like with um, the Bloody Chamber. There's the, like, the consummation of the marriage where the husband keeps, like, seeming like he's going to consummate the marriage, but not consummating it until it's a point in time when the bride isn't actually particularly interested in consummating it, and that's Mm -hmm. him... Exercising his power and authority over her and part of the satisfaction he gets in that sexual encounter is in the oppression of her and the domination of her will. And that's very important in the story. And it's a sort of it's sort of iconic of a larger theme of that throughout the story.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's the sort of way we are used to seeing sex as an exploration of power. But it also happens in other ways, where sometimes it's women reclaiming their power through choosing to have sex, and then there's the Puss in Boots story, in which the sexual interaction is actually a way of asserting your authority outside of a different
0: relationship. Yeah. So to go back to the Bloody Chamber one, I think it's worth noting that uh, I think Angela Carter takes a real stand for 1979, and uh, takes the hot take, the Duke or whatever his title is in it, um, does get his brains blown out at the end of the story. So I think yeah. that she's sending out the message that sex for the purpose of oppression, bad? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. We're good at saying I, that? Okay, I
1: agree with that, and uh, I think that, I agree that she is saying that. I also agree that that is true. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> so, yeah. But then there's, like, the, I think it's the tiger's bride, where the um, woman decides to go off and become a tiger, and Part of that is becoming the mate of a tiger and transforming into a tiger. Um and it's, it, it's very weird. I was um, gonna
0: say it's less weird in the story. It's, it's not, not.
1: <laughs> it's not. And there the one where the um there's a woman who's her father loses her in a bet. That's the
0: tiger's bride. Is that
1: the tiger's bride? Yeah. Um where I, but it, that in that one the build up is like she asserts herself as an equal. Yes. And that's a very important part of that story. It's like a more reclaiming mm-hmm. Type of sexual story.
0: Yeah, well, the tiger wants her to be subjugated to him, effectively. Mm -hmm. And she's in a position where the choices that are presented to her are, you can do this thing, and or you can go back to your father who cares about you so much that he lost you in a game. Mm -hmm. And at that point she's claiming, and it's not, as you say, it's not about the power Of her and the tiger as much, Mm -hmm. although there is an equality there, which is important. But it's about reclaiming power from her father as well.
1: Well, it's about her claiming her own autonomy and her will, basically. Like, just because these are the choices presented didn't mean that they were the only choices. The choice that was presented to her was the tiger wants to see you naked. And then you can go home with all of your stuff and everything else that he won from your father and more, more nice stuff that you and your father can live happily on, whatever. And she's like, okay, so you're telling me that I have to, you know, submit myself to be humiliated by you. And then I can go back to my already pretty shitty existence being the humiliated pawn of my father's like schemes to get rich. Yeah, those sound that sounds pretty bad, short and long term. And, like, I have my pride, basically, is kind of her whole thing. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. Eventually, the only way she does end up stripping for the tiger is if he strips too, basically. And so it's like, okay, we can be equals, but I'm not going to submit to you. you. You presented a false choice. Like imprisonment or humiliation, and I'm choosing neither of those things.
0: We should clarify that the Beast is wearing clothes in this story.
1: Yeah, he is. Um, he is dressed up like a man.
0: It is. I think it's a Beauty and the Beast story.
1: It pretty much is, sort of. Except she, it doesn't really imply, doesn't really indicate that she loves him. Like that, the whole Beauty and the Beast story, like the beast has to be transformed by like the pure love of a woman etc.
0: Well the beast isn't transformed in this. Exactly. That's the subversion is that right she's she's,
1: she's yeah. the one who decides no my role within human society sucks i'm not going to do that i'm going to cast off the trappings of humanity in this case clothes and human civility and yeah. conventions and run off to be a, a wild and free animal
0: yeah.
1: with an equal partner
0: We'll come back to that when we're talking about beasts and capitalism as
1: well. Yeah, although interesting note with the tiger's bride, tigers are solitary creatures. They come together to mate and then they live solitary lives. Huh. So if she's becoming a tiger, that mating thing is a very brief and targeted interaction and then she's gone doing her own thing.
0: I, I do question how much Angela Carter might have known about tiger mating habits, but sure.
1: I don't know, I think it works very well with the story because there's not really much of a like emotional connection between the woman and the tiger before or after she becomes a tiger like she runs off with him but then like there's nothing that we see after that and it doesn't seem like she's particularly attached to him so i I feel like it would be well within the person we know through the narrations like character if she had the freeing experience of running off and becoming a tiger and then lived her solitary existence with the exception of brief mating like forays
0: um you mentioned Piss in Boots. And
1: right. So going back to the whole, like, the sex in these stories, which is a very consistent theme in the story. I think sex plays an important role in almost all of them, if not all of them. Um, is that their power is always there somewhere. And when we were talking about that, you were like, well, I don't know about Piss in Boots. Like, that one's really good with consent and stuff. And I was like, yeah, the people who are actually having sex, they seem to be equals and, like, equal participants ...in the sexual encounter, but the sexual encounter between the humans is in a large way, like, sticking it to the oppressive husband of the the woman. Freezing? (laughs) You know what I mean, though. It's like you think that you've got your wife on lockdown and isn't going to be able to cheat on you, despite the fact that you spend very little time with her and are impotent and can't satisfy her sexually yourself... Well, jokes on you. We're finding a way to assert ourselves um, and our will, despite your attempt at oppressive dominion of this woman.
0: Yeah, so there is still that power play involved,
1: right? the The sex itself is still a power move. It's just not a power move between the two people having sex.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, the sex in all the story, the stories, all contain sex, or they take contain a notable lack of sex. Like what? I think. The Lady of the House of Love.
1: I thought there was sex in that one.
0: No, she um falls in love with him, mm-hmm. maybe, and then she cuts herself, mm-hmm. is startled by it, and faints, and he ends up drinking her blood, like, again, kissing mm-hmm. it better, mm-hmm. which I think makes her human. Okay. Um, but then he, like, sleeps on the floor.
1: Oh, right, yeah, you're right.
0: And then when he wakes up in the morning, she's in her chair and dead.
1: Mm-hmm. Angela Carter makes a I don't know, she makes a big deal about mentioning that the young man in that story is a virgin. Yes. And that makes him invulnerable to like the predatory nature of the vampire. And so even though there isn't sex, as you say, like the as you say, the lack of sex is very important. Both that he has never had sex before and that they don't have sex. Instead, the, like, tender ministration ends up killing the monster. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: it's a, a killing with kindness situation, like, literally in that story. Yeah. I mean, it's also a story about non-toxic masculinity, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a young man who is home from war and going to go back to war. And that hasn't diminished his capacity for compassion. And he's a nurturing and yeah, healing person. So.
0: That's the superior officer who's like, Oh yeah, you should go down to this brothel in the town and he's like,
2: mm, no.
0: <laughs> Thanks. But no
2: Yeah, and
1: I do think that's also important too, is it's not for a lack of opportunity that he's a virgin. Like he's made that choice himself, like of his own will as part of his character. Like that's not something he needs to feel like a man or happy with himself.
0: Just going down the list. I don't remember whether the werewolf does. Wolf Alice doesn't
2: have
1: sex in it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think so.
0: Yeah,
2: which one's the werewolf? I don't remember. It's a
0: very short one. Oh, it's just the short story where it's um she gets attacked by a wolf and cuts off its paw. And then her grandmother was missing her hand. That's
1: the um, Red Riding Hood subversion.
0: Um, So so there are three stories that don't contain sex. But mostly, um, there's a fairly consistent...
1: I think those three all much more strongly use wolves as a metaphor for masculinity and capitalism, rather than exploring power through sex.
0: We'll come back to talk about Wolf Alice on that because I'm not sure I agree with you on that point. But otherwise, yes.
1: Well, which one is 142? Is that.
0: That's the Company of Wolves. Yeah. And the Company of Wolves and the Earl King I want to talk about next to each other. Yeah. Because I think those two have some parallels with the girl going to the beast, as it were. Mm-hmm. So, like, in the Company of Wolves, the. Protagonist kind of like is trapped with the werewolf, and there's a whole load of wolves around, and joins the pack effectively. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, there's the implication that they then sleep together. I don't think it's explicit in that one, which is an interesting comparison to the Earl King, where she goes to him for a while, but then you get the point where she realizes that all the birds in cages are girls that have done the same thing before and have been trapped by him. Uh-huh. and kills him kills him
2: the earl king i
1: think that one to me just sounds like the like the trap of civilization and like the trap of capitalism yeah and of being seduced by the security and the attention but ultimately realizing that you are building your own cage
2: okay and like yeah.
1: walking into a constrained existence that you don't necessarily realize. I think debt really comes to mind with that one to me Mm -hmm. Um, because there's a lot in the, especially modern life where it seems like we're constantly being sold this idea of debt as being an inevitable thing that you need to take on in order to have anything approaching like a normal or desirable existence. But then it ends up trapping you in ways that are very far-reaching and very hard to get out of.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I I, I think it makes sense for us to move on to talking about beasts and civility and capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I do just want to say before we depart from sex, I think it's mm-hmm. important to note that these stories all contain sex, some of which is described somewhat graphically,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: also all in, like. correct me if I'm wrong, fairly aggressive, not like erotic ways in any way like i don't think yeah. anyone is reading this and taking pleasure from this it's scenes.
1: it's kind of like the scene in birds of prey where roman is making the guy cut off his friend's dress where it's
0: yeah.
1: it's done in a way where like you know that you know what's happening and it's something that could be written in a titillating way but it's not it's more descriptive and I don't know, not that it's more descriptive because i guess stuff that is written erotically is also descri- descriptive but yeah it's not it's not written to be titillating or erotic it's written so that you know what's happening but it also so it's making other statements about what's happening and what place the sex has in the context of the story rather than being actually a attempt to explore like a sensual experience yeah um... if that makes any sense
0: yeah, and I I would say that some of them are I mean the word aggressive sprung to mind before and like some of them are like traumatising events for the individual mm-hmm. but I still don't think in a way that I don't think they're written in a way that anyone can enjoy them and I would say that in thinking about there's a book called Dirty Work by an author called Julia Bell who I had a class with or heard give a talk at one point and it's about girls who are human trafficked and mm-hmm. sold into sex work. And this book, very carefully, doesn't contain any sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Because when she was doing research for it all, she found that there are communities of people who are looking out for documentaries on it and stuff because they get off of the information that is provided. And did want to
1: feed into that. yeah, yeah. Which is gross. It, it is. It is gross. And I'm glad that she was conscientious about not... Being a market for that, yeah.
0: So I, I don't, I'm not an expert, but I don't think that these scenes would play into that. But they still managed to get across the horrific nature of some of it. Yeah. I mean, even the things that are consensual aren't described enjoyably. But. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just a prude. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, sort of overall, just to like wrap up the conversation about sex. There, mm-hmm. um, I think that we see a few times where a woman is using it to claim power for herself within the world, not necessarily Mm -hmm. over the other person, as you say, Mm -hmm. um, but as a way for her to take power Mm -hmm. of her own. And the times that it's not used in that way, I think that there tends to be a just consequence for the man in the situation, for example, in the bloody chamber. The one story that might not ring true for that is The Snow Child.
1: That one's really weird, and I... I think that one is more about the complicity of the spectator.
0: Did you want to come back to that? that?
1: Not necessarily. We can talk about it now. So, like, that one's a really short, like, two-page story that's, like, a weird, brief retelling version. Not even a retelling, but a weird, brief version of Snow White. Sort of where, like, a count, I think, and his wife are riding through the woods. And the count comments... On a few different landscape features saying that he wishes he had a child as black as a crow's wing, white as snow, whatever. And then, like, a child appears and the countess kills her. Right. Because she's jealous.
0: No, the countess tries to get rid of her in a few ways. Right, tries to get rid
1: of her in a few ways.
0: And eventually, like, manages to be like, oh, you should go and pick the rose. And the count Mm -hmm. can't refuse that. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. sure, go get a rose. And then she pricks her finger on the rose thorn and dies Right, and as then, often happens when you put fingers on the rose thorn.
2: Yeah, which is,
1: it's very weird and then the count rapes the body of the snow child and the countess is just there like clearly uncomfortable but doesn't do anything about it and just like waits for him and then they then leave and like pretend it didn't happen basically and that I think is about like the complicity of Some women in the oppression of other women. Yeah. The like you hear all of this stuff of like all these things that women are told to do to avoid getting raped that essentially boil down to make sure someone else gets raped instead of you, which is a really fucked up thing. If you think about it, like if you really think about it, that's what you're saying. You're saying make sure that someone else who wasn't smart enough to wear a longer dress or whatever bullshit it is, someone whose friends weren't looking out for her, make sure it's her instead of you. But no, the reality is that no one should be assaulted in that way, and, or really in any way, and more effort should be expended on teaching people to not assault other people. And also, I don't want to pretend like the problem with sexual assault is exclusively a you know men-assaulting-women phenomenon, because it definitely isn't. But I do know, like as a woman, that a lot of that bullshit rhetoric is out there when someone is hurt. They're like, oh, well, what were you wearing? How much did you drink? Whatever. And all of that is complicity and says that you are not as invested in fixing the problem as you are feeling like you have some sense of control over what happens to you and pretending like it won't affect you if you do everything right, ignoring that no one can do everything right all the time. And so what you're essentially saying is that making one mistake or error in judgment means you deserve rape, which is just ridiculous and fucked up. So that's really what I got out of that story, is like this is sort of an allegory of complicity and of ignoring the real problem, because to confront it is more uncomfortable and requires more work on your part.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a sort of tangential read where... She's jealous of the child, mm-hmm. um, and is trying to get rid of the child, in sort of a, I've got mine, don't take it away from me, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's worried that this child is going to take the attention, and the some of the things disappear from her onto the child's body, like her boots and things. Right. And it's, I mean, in some of the same, same things that you were saying there, in that, like, it's setting the women up against each other, mm-hmm. when... It's the man who's got all the power, and that's mm-hmm. what the problem is. Right. So.
1: Yeah. I think those are kind of different uh, different angles on the same yeah. thing. It's, yeah, we shouldn't be dividing the oppressed people against one another, because that just plays into the hands of the oppressive actor in the situation. Unfortunately, that's the oldest trick in the playbook of oppressive groups, is Pit the oppressed group uh, of in oppressive groups because, unfortunately, that's the one of the oldest tricks in the playbook of oppressors is to divide the oppressed against one another so that they can't form a united front and actually challenge the authority.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, while we are talking about men and like patriarchy in these stories, I did have a quote that I pulled out where I really felt like Angela Carter is talking about men and patriarchy. Some of the thing I was talking about, sort of like with the Snow Child, but, um, you are always in danger in the forest where no people are. Step between the portals of the great pines where the shaggy branches tangle about you, trapping the unwary traveler in nets as if the vegetation itself were in a plot with the wolves who live there. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. For if you stray from the path for one instant, the wolves will eat you. They are as gray as famine, they are as unkind as plague. it's that same idea I was talking about before, where it's like if you like where the world is a trap for people in oppressed categories. In this case, it's more of an exploration of women. The world is a trap for women, where if you make one wrong, wrong move, you get all these messages that you deserve whatever happens to you. And what you say is interpreted as flirtatious. What you're wearing is interpreted as too sexy or whatever. It's your fault if something happens to you and you should have been more careful. And also this characterization of men as wolves who will attack if given the opportunity, which is pretty uncharitable characterization of men and really just supports a lot of toxic ideas that then I think some men try to live up to because it's tied into these other ideas of positive or of approved masculinity, I guess. Um, Similarly, they're like on the next page that long-drawn wavering howl has for all its fearful resonance some inherent sadness in it as if the beasts would love to be less beastly if only they knew how and never cease to mourn their own condition there is a vast melancholy in the canicles of the wolves melancholy infinite as the forest that mourning for their own irremediable appetites can never move the heart for not one phrase in it hints at the possibility of redemption Grace could not come to the wolf from its own despair, only through some external mediator, so that sometimes the best will look as if he half welcomes the knife that dispatches him. So that whole passage, I think that's actually about men. And there's some, like, man-hating feminist angle in there, in terms of casting men as having irremediable appetites, and not in any way capable of redemption, at least not on their own, needing someone else to mediate them from, to stop being horrible, horrible people, I guess, and like predators. But there's also this idea of like men being sad about being predators and maybe wanting to not be predators, but not knowing how. And I think that has a lot to do with some ideas of toxic masculinity, where men are taught to judge their manliness by their sexual conquests. And, Things like that, basically, and physical strength and brutality and ability to be a badass and all of that stuff. But it's also pretty damning, again, because it's saying, like, that men can't do any better than that, even if they want to, unless someone else helps them. But on the other hand, I can kind of see that argument because people in general don't really become better without any intervention at all. Like, if all of your circumstances and influences remain the same – Nothing is going to stimulate any change in your perception or in your values. It's through the interaction with people who have different values and different experiences, those mediators, that you can become a less toxic person and be more compassionate and understanding of other ways of being. Mm. So in some ways, I think it's, it's pretty harsh on men. But in other ways, I can kind of see some of the statements that or some of the messages that could be read there. Um, although it, I I think maybe the worst gut punch part is sometimes the best will look as if he half welcomes the knife that dispatches him. And this is like this idea that a good man wants to be put out of his misery mm-hmm. um, of having to live as a man in our society, like recognizing the unavoidable privilege of that position and the oppressive nature of the role of men in our society. And like, would find it a relief to be relieved of it. Which is very sad, but also, I don't know, there's a lot there.
0: Well, especially, because which story is that one? In?
1: Um, I think it's in the second to last one. It's page 142 and 143. Company yeah, Company of Wolves.
0: Yeah, well, that's also talking about werewolves, which is the men who seem charming and friendly, but have this bestial nature on the inside. Yes. And it's talking about the wolf form looking like it wishes like it would be thankful for the knife. hmm So like
1: But when they die they also revert to be- back to being human. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. So my point being like I don't know, it's um when do we start using the term toxic masculinity as a culture?
1: I don't know. I think later than this though. Yeah, that's
0: what sort I was of thinking, is that like it's it seems like a recognition of that sort of a trend where people are being raised and socialized this way, but on some level don't feel that way.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And in some ways, at least recognize that they've, that their knee jerk responses that have been conditioned in them are predatory or oppressive to other people. And they don't want to be bad people. They don't want to be someone that other people are afraid of or intimidated by. Uh, they want to participate with other people as equals, but they don't really know how because all of their behavior or socialization is geared toward getting the upper hand in a social situation and being in this like alpha male role where they're being respected and and are intimidating.
0: Yeah. I think uh, an interesting place to go from here, we're just talking about the wolfish nature and things, is talking about how beasts are presented in general in the story. And the different perspectives we get, and I think a really good place to start for that is comparing The Courtship of Mr. Lion and The Tiger's Bride, mm-hmm. which are both, I think, takes on the Beauty and the Beast story. Mm-hmm. In The Courtship of Mr. Lion, the father is breaks down and takes the hospitality of Mr. Lion in this version, and then tries to take too much. And the penance is, effectively leave your daughter here for to keep me company while you're Off doing this other stuff and I'll help you out more.
2: Yes? Well,
1: he he takes what's offered and then he takes a rose that isn't offered. Yes. And then at that point the lion is like, Okay, you're a thief and now you're you owe me.
0: Yeah. Um But
1: I don't think I think it's important that he doesn't I mean, I guess he does know that it it wasn't offered. Yeah. But he doesn't value it in the same way as like, food and shelter, and so doesn't think it will be a big deal. And I but think it's he's the like, principle of the thing that he took something that wasn't offered.
0: And I think it's also an element of, like, well, he gave me all that other stuff, why would mm-hmm. he mind about one rose? hmm So you end up in that position where you've got the girl with the animal, mm-hmm. and then in the Tiger's Bride we mentioned, like, she's lost in a card game. hmm And from those points in Mr. Lion, it's that... That sounds ridiculous every time I say it. Um... But in that, it's that they come together in some way, and her affection for him allows him to become human. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Tiger's Bride, it goes the other way, as we talked about. And like, But it's
1: not affection, it's the respect. Yeah. Yeah, the mutual respect allows her to become a lion and cease to be human and constrained by her oppressed role in human society.
0: But I think it's important that the tiger... Effectively, like, licks off her skin to reveal mm-hmm. the tiger that's underneath. Mm-hmm. The tiger was inside her all along, shut sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, oh. I think there... Actually, one of the quotes from I have is from that, um, I was unaccustomed to nakedness. I was so unused to my own skin that to take off all my clothes involved a kind of fling. It is not natural for humankind to go naked. And that's actually a couple pages after the tiger will never lie down with the lamb. He acknowledges no pact that is not reciprocal. The lamb must learn to run with the tigers. That to me spoke of the whole like idea of like women having to kind of play a men's game to get respect. Right. But but yeah, back to the flaying part. Yeah, it's that it's unnatural. I, I also feel like that's in some ways a commentary on the socialization of women that it's not – it doesn't come naturally to someone who's been socialized to be subservient and humble and always giving ground and giving space to assert themselves and you know take on their own like will and power and desires in society and to assert themselves as an equal.
0: Yeah, and um, it, it's the Tiger's Bride is effectively the if you can't beat them, join them game. Yes. Whereas the. Courtship of Mr. Lion is much more of a
1: I can change him.
0: Yes. Well she can, apparently. Um mm-hmm. in this story. But
1: Yeah. There are interesting explorations of a lot of like larger tropes that play out in our society between men and women, or in terms of like the way that women are told to pursue different goals. There's the whole having it all thing. There's but, I mean, you don't really see that so much in these stories. These don't really deal with motherhood really as much as they do with like independence. but it is still there are these ideas of like one i one idea is to find find one of the good ones or change a man into one of the good ones so that you can have a healthy and equal relationship that way by making him less toxic. And the other one is, or you can be the ballbuster CEO yourself and make them fear you and be just as hardcore and badass as any of, and predatory as any of the men. It's like, you can be toxic too. You know what I mean? And then there are some other ones where it's just like, you just need to figure out what you want and fuck everybody else.
0: Yeah. And I wonder how much that's changed in the past 41 years.
1: I think some of it has changed. I think that the acknowledgement of greater nuance in each of those is, you know, more advanced. I think that most people recognize that none of that is as cut and dried as it sounds. It's not that easy to just go in and be just as ruthless and as committed as any of the male executives. I think there's more acknowledgement that there's a lot more systemically going on. That makes that harder. And similarly, that there are a lot more factors involved. In, like, you can't change everybody. No matter how great a person you are, that doesn't mean you can make someone who is a you know, misogynist ass suddenly see you as an equal. That's not going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't men who want to be less toxic and who are working on being less toxic out there that you can help to yeah. be a good partner. Yeah. And of course, this is all very heteronormative, but that's also just the way all these stories are written, so it's a little hard to get away from that in discussing these stories.
0: Yeah. Maybe there's an argument for the Lady of the House of Love being a lesbian. She's repulsed by the expectations of society that she's got to eat all these people. No? Too much of a stretch? I don't know. I tried.
2: Mm, More
1: asexual.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about beastliness in Wolf Alice. Because I want to hear your take on that. In, so in Wolf Alice, there's a girl who's been raised by wolves, and she's mm-hmm. found by some nuns. No, she's found by some people who have killed Wolf Alice's foster mother, mm-hmm. and is given to some nuns who try and tame her and fail. Um, and
1: she's fairly young at that point. Yeah. She's probably like eight or something-ish. And,
0: and then, then she gets her. given to the Duke, which I think is all he's ever known as. He um, seems
1: to be a werewolf or a vampire or
0: both. Or he just really likes eating corpses. It's not totally clear.
1: He's some form of monster. He
0: doesn't appear in mirrors, and he does mm-hmm. do some grave robbing to get dinner.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't seem to kill people. No.
0: Just, just some discarded mm-hmm. remains. Anyway.
1: I mean, I think that's it's an interesting story. It's hard to say exactly what it is trying to say. It is. I recently read an article about a guy who lived by himself in the woods in Maine for 20-something years. Was it Maine? Yeah, it was in the middle of Maine. That was part of what was so impressive about the fact that he was able to survive by himself through the winters for 20-something years. And he did survive by strategically stealing from, like, cabins and stuff in the area. But still one of the things that he did say about identity during that time is that like if you are totally by yourself and not in the company of other humans there's no reason to think of yourself as separate from like other things like you or think about yourself specifically because you're not performing for anyone you're not worrying about how you're being perceived because you're not being perceived Mm -hmm. and so the sort of reflectiveness kind of falls away and those kinds of concerns are not there and you don't need to to keep track of time in as granular a way as we do and in Wolf Alice like she discovers her reflection and that's it takes her a while to realize that it's her reflection before that point she doesn't even really have any awareness of what she looks like or how any of her actions might be perceived everything is in the context of like utility and sensation and necessity, bit just existing as a creature, and I think that that's interesting, and it it coincides very well with what the guy was saying, the hermit yeah. was saying. You just stop analyzing yourself and just be.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because she she does have an interesting progression there because you're talking about like marking the period passing of time and things, mm-hmm. and she like. Doesn't really have any concept of time until she starts getting her period. Mm-hmm. And then she learns that that is a period of time. hmm A period of...
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Anyway, and it's from there that she starts to work everything else out.
1: Right, and she starts keeping track of time so that she was able to prepare for her menstrual cycle, because it's a thing that involves additional work and supplies and etc. so... At that point, keeping track of time became relevant. Yeah. Like, in a more granular way that it hadn't been prior to that point in her life. If she had shelter and she had access to food and access to a source of warmth, it didn't matter how long any period of time was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of see her coming out of some of the things associated with the beast Mm -hmm. notion, like she starts wearing clothes towards the end, Mm -hmm. Um, and then her sort of like beastly master type duke person doesn't appear in mirrors until he's been wounded and she goes to help his wound and care for it, and then he appears in mirrors at that point. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Do you have any take on that? No. Oh, okay. Um, Do you? Well, I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to the stuff with Mr. Lion, where it's the care and affection being shown by anyone is...
1: unlike mm. with Lady in the House of Love. Yeah. Where the administration of another person yeah. makes you part of civilization. Yeah. It makes you exist and makes you real in society.
0: Yeah. That's pretty much what I was going for. Thank
1: you. You're welcome. Well, oh, and again, that relates back to what sort of the inverse of what the hermit was saying in Maine. When you have other people there, you have a context that you belong to. When you don't, you don't. And so you don't have to worry about the context, but also you kind of stop existing as you as like your own consciousness that you're considering separately.
0: Yeah. I think there's a few interesting ways that the literal beasts are used to show some class dynamics and some capitalism issues. I think one of the interesting ones for that is in Puss and Boots, where within that story, the fact that he is a cat is coincidentally relevant. You could change a few elements in there and it wouldn't matter that he was a cat. You, like you want
1: to me. I think that Angela Carter, I really like Puss in Boots because it's really cutely written. Like, if you're paying close attention, there's definitely some unreliable narrator or perspective of the narrator going on that really adds a lot to the humor in the story. Yeah. But I think I see what you mean because you could, and people have, written this kind of story where it's a servant. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is that servants are invisible. Instead, it's an animal... And animals are kind of invisible in our society. They're not given the same weight or consideration for intellectual capacity and personhood as humans are. But that's also the same thing that happens, unfortunately, with people in serving positions, you know, the help, you know, who become sort of invisible and are treated and thought of in some cases like they're not as smart as other people or not and definitely treated like they're not as important as other people or as worthy of being worried about it's like the the man who's trying to cut his wife's contact with anyone off doesn't care that she has contact with a cat and has a servant like a a maid
0: yeah So, at that point, like, I mean, they say, like... Are those the
1: class things that you were talking about? Yeah, precisely. Mm
0: -hmm. It's, that the use of the cat in that image is, Mm -hmm. in its own way, making its own comment about that class system that's in play there. Mm -hmm.
1: But it's also showing the power of servants and the overlooked people, or the overlooked, in this case, cats. Um, But, you know, the overlooked parts of a household or parts of an organization that make sure a lot of things happen and are an entry point into change, like to making things different. Part of how you get a place to start unionizing is by getting people who are interested in unions or work for a union to work somewhere to tell people about the reasons that you should have a union and they'd be beneficial for you to get people aware and interested to mobilize them. And that's by putting someone in that position of... in those entry-level roles to talk about it and spread the word and spread the information and get, thing, get the ball rolling.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that there's a sort of similar situation with the tiger's servant in the tiger's bride, almost in a different direction. With the tiger's bride and her going off into the wilderness, then, like, in that story... The beasts are those who are free of this faux civility and things. Mm -hmm. Like, the humans that you see in that story aren't nice people. No. The animals aren't great either, to be fair. But I don't think anyone in this book is really a great person. Um,
1: The mother who comes and rescues her daughter in the bloody witch chamber. She's awesome. Like, she's the best.
0: (laughs) But his servant is... A monkey. A monkey. Which is the closest thing in that world to a person. There's the sort of automaton maids Mm -hmm. that work there that the household literally sends off an automaton that looks kind of like her to be her in the world
1: Mm -hmm. i really love that actually like as a commentary because it's that like this is what society really wants women to be it's just a little automaton that does what's expected and what's you know what they're told to do yeah i actually had a quote about the automaton I was a young girl and therefore men denied me rationality just as they denied it to all those who are not exactly like themselves in all their own reason. Had I not been allotted only the same kind of an imitative life amongst men that the doll maker had given her about the automaton that looks like her. Yeah. And I just, I just loved that. I thought yeah. it was really great. <laughs>
0: I feel like that's such a brief comment as well. Mm Like, it's sort of that, and then it's on to something else.
1: Well, that whole story, like, the protagonist in it is very reflective and very clear about the shitty and oppressed role she has in society and how society wants her to be less than she's capable of being. That society cannot handle her being on an equal footing with men in society. Yeah. And she's stubborn, and you know, is not going to make herself less than she is because other people want her to. Yeah. Or a tiger wants her to.
0: Tigers are people too. Well, no, no. In not. this, sort of the point of In that. this
1: story, he really wants to be
2: people, or pretends to be people.
0: Um, I think that the other interesting ones talked about for beasts in relation to sort of society and such are going to be the company of wolves, with how the wolves are in that. And then also, you had started to say some stuff about the Old King earlier. I don't know if you managed to finish it.
1: What was I saying about the Earl King earlier?
0: About capitalism and making your own cages and debts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I covered that pretty well. I mean, I think we all know what that looks like. Okay. It's just remaining okay with, or, you know, continuing to go along with that and not imagining or fighting for any better state of existence. Seeing a lot going around now during the coronavirus pandemic about how.
0: Oh, if you're listening to this from the future, by the way, it's the coronavirus. Hopefully, it's not still a
1: thing. Yeah, we're recording this toward the end of March, and most of the things that I'm seeing indicate that this is going to be a thing that's affecting our daily lives for several months, if not a year and a half or so. But anyway. I'm seeing a lot of stuff going around right now about how a lot of the measures that are being taken to mitigate the problems caused by people not being able to go to work and things like that are things that just could have been being done In general, that a lot of the suffering that people go through, a lot of the stress that people are under is arbitrary, ultimately, and perpetuated for the limited benefit of a very few extremely wealthy people. And we can and should try to return not to the status quo, but to a better state of living and a better standard for our community after this, that we can have guaranteed housing and guaranteed minimum standards of living for everyone. Because we have what is necessary to do that if we aren't imposing arbitrary limitations on the access to those things. And so we've been compromising by default forever because we're buying into the idea that a lot of these other things are immutable, but they're not unfettered capitalism is not a natural law. And there's no actual reason not to let people live in unoccupied housing instead of being homeless. There's no actual reason to not make sure that people have what they need to have a decent standard of living. There's no actual reason that people who are disabled can't have more than $2,000 worth of assets in uh, the bank at any point in time ever. That all of those things are arbitrary that we've decided because imposing those restrictions helps a very tiny percentage of people in power yep i should probably stop the soapboxing
0: but oh, this is this is a political podcast it's what we say at the start it's true no I mean, I mean at the end of the day like we're talking about stories and we're talking about stories and how they fit into our culture yeah it's what i think a lot of criticism forgets is sometimes that the story is about the culture it's in and yeah yeah that's that's what why stories are important
1: So I think with the Earl King, that's part of it to me is you don't have to agree that those are immutable aspects of society. You can, in fact, fight for change in the society instead and argue that it doesn't have to be like this.
0: Yeah. Do we want to say anything about Company of Wolves?
2: Um, I don't remember that one as well.
0: It's the one where, um... It's
2: the Weird Red Riding Hood one, right?
0: Well, there's two. Because there's one where she comes across the wolf on the way Mm -hmm. and cuts off its paw, and then her grandmother is missing a paw. Mm -hmm. And then there's one where he makes a bet with her that he can get there first. Mm -hmm. He does, um, because she's dawdling, because she wants a kiss. Mm -hmm. And then he kills the grandmother, makes everything perfect, and then traps her in the hut. And uh, she sort of has a power move with him. Mm. Because there's the whole thing of, Carnival and on only immaculate flesh appeases him. She will lay his fearful head on her lap and she will pick out the lice from his pelt, and perhaps she will put the lice into her mouth and eat them as he will bid her as she would do in savage in a savage marriage ceremony like he sort of she's sort of like well, instead of eating me, I'll be your wife which I don't know if it's a power play or you not know. okay anyway that's that's which story that is Do you want to say anything about that?
1: I don't know, I think that one's uh, i mean like so many of these it's a very weird story. I mean, I think you could argue that it's another one of those, like, women have not great options in our society, and either way, you are giving up some of your freedom or something about what makes you yourself and what makes you free if you're trying to play by any of the rules that men expect you to, and our society expects you to.
0: Yeah, I feel like it is another one of the, uh, if you can't beat them, join them ones. Yeah. So.
1: It's like you you have to play by their rules, or at least all the messaging you get tells you that's what you have to do.
0: Yeah. So before we go on to talking about a few of the sort of storytelling elements that I wanted to touch on, just sort of how they function and how they affect stories, um, which we may have hinted at already, but we'll do it a little bit more explicitly. I want to just take a moment and see, like, can we... We talked the other day about the collection and said that it, you couldn't really say... Oh, Angela Carter is saying this because there are so many stories that take slightly different tax, tax, tax. I'm the one with sailing certification. Do we think that we could, at this point, put together a what we think Angela Carter is saying, or what we think this collection is saying, more precisely?
2: I think
1: it's a larger commentary on the traps women find themselves in in society, and that those look can look different, but they're all sort of of a piece. Individual situation may vary, but the constraints are always there.
0: And all of your options kind of suck. Yeah. And men kind of suck.
1: Yes. Like I said, there's some. There's definitely an element of like the man-hating feminist in this, but I don't find it unjustified.
0: I would say that I. I mean, I think there's a cro- couple of sort of addendums to it, which is mm-hmm. one. Sometimes women suck too. Yes, um, definitely. And also, I think that the guy in. The lady in the house, house of love Earth. gets exemplary awards mm. for not being a dick.
1: Yeah, and in fact, being a nurturing person. Yeah, I don't really think there's any room for absolutes in this collection, and no. I appreciate that. It, but it is, it is very much making a, some broad, general statements of like, generally speaking, women's options kind of suck and are pretty limited to a lot of bullshit societal constraints and socialization structures. Yeah.
0: So I guess we just invite everyone to go and read the collection. It's it's all of 150 pages, and tell us if we're wrong.
2: Or if we're right. It would be nice
0: to send a little message. You're right. <laughs> anyway, so I think we've talked about this decent amount without naming it, mm-hmm. and I think it's unfair of us not to name it, which is Angela Carter's use of magical realism in this. Mm-hmm. So magical realism, for anyone who's not familiar, is effectively where you have a realistic setting, and then you just introduce things that are bizarre and unbelievable but continues to treat them as though that's fairly normal that's just the thing that happens oh that guy looks kind of weird oh it's because he's a tiger in a suit that's what it is gotcha
1: yeah and like i was thinking i think bloody chamber itself the only magic in it is the key yeah. That turns red and can't be cleaned, and then all of the red goes to, like, a little heart shape that the husband presses on her forehead, and then that's, like, an indelible mark for the rest of her life. There's literally no other magic in the entire story other yep. than that. And that's just, like, this symbolic thing that's an important mechanism in the story for him to know that she opened the door, but otherwise you don't actually need any further magical stuff in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah sort of keeps it being more about the people. And it's like you, when you get... I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, it's going to start to sound like I'm a huge fan of it. There's the film In Time with star actor Justin Timberlake in the lead role. But it's a science fiction story that opens with a narration that says, hey, this is how this world works. Don't worry about why. And moves on from there. So that they can tell a story in a world that works like that without having to spend all the time explaining magical realism allows Angela Carter to just say, In this world, a tiger can wear a suit and a mask and play cards. Don't question it.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it helps with making consequences more real and foreseeable and impactful because the magic is so limited to like a specific and boundaried thing. That you're not going to have other magical things interfering with other expectations or real-world effects of the actual events in the story. Like, no one's coming back from the dead in these stories or anything like that. Uh, People are transforming into tigers, and that's it. Um, There's nothing else that is happening there. And these Um,
0: clockwork automatons are very lifelike.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that one, it, it changes to look like her, and then it doesn't look like her anymore. So, I mean, there's a little bit of...
0: Well, she doesn't like it anymore.
1: She doesn't look like it anymore, yeah. Yeah, the magic is so limited, and it's always very strategic in terms of, like, it's happening this way for it to accomplish a particular storytelling need, and yeah. that's it.
0: I think it also helps with some of the messaging that she's trying to put out with the wolves and stuff, like, a werewolf is... A man that turns into a wolf, but he's also a man who is a wolf, Mm -hmm. in some degrees. Like, you can see it in his eyes, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and with that one in particular, I think that's important because it's... I think that's talking about the essential predatory nature of certain men. And it's not all men who are werewolves. It's the shitty ones. Yeah. Uh, It's the ones who think that, you know, marital rape shouldn't be illegal, and that... You know, so-and-so is asking for it and, you know, pretty much everything yeah. Trump ever says. Like, it's <laughs> it's those guys, the libertarians who argue about age of consent laws rather than actually thinking about what they mean. It's that kind of stuff. It's those guys who are werewolves and it's a part of their essential nature that is betrayed by that state. It's not that that state is secondary. They're all together.
0: Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Mitch Barrett?
1: I think it's also used in some ways for the, like, poetic nature of the way that these are written, mm. because it helps to create a more fantastical tone where you can make really strange observations and connections between things that might seem more out of place if there, there weren't the occasional magical aspect to the world, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. that That's a good point. Um, also, just the, the fact that you say the sort of poetic nature, mm-hmm. the way that this is written, it's... It's hard to read it quickly. Mm-hmm. It is very well written and there were a couple of moments where like I had to stop and just check that the paragraph I was reading didn't fit a strict meter because mm-hmm. it like the writing does have such a natural rhythm to it mm-hmm. at times.
1: So. Well like there's the passage that I was reading about the wolves and there there's such judgments wrapped up there but it's done in a very poetic and mystical type of way, there's a higher order message there, and it's lightly obscured by this more, like, magical and visual scene. Or not even visual, but magical and, like, sense-oriented description. Yeah. Um, That would feel more out of place if it was a strictly just, like, short stories that didn't have any magic in them, where it was just talking about people places and, like, historical inequality and stuff without the, like, allegorical help of the magical elements that are used.
0: Yeah. The other things I want to touch on were less interesting. (laughs) Um, I think that this is uh, one of those times where, like, I think each of these stories could only be a short story. I think there's a couple which are a couple of pages and could be a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but there's... Certain things that you can get away with in the short story form that you couldn't get away with for a novel. To some degree, things like suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. I think that there's certain things that like we go okay, sure for two pages, but around page fifty, we'd be going,
2: but what about?
1: Yeah, it, it would start to break down.
0: But also, you can do a lot more with unlikable characters. It's much harder to get someone to commit to reading a entire novel about. Someone who is just kind of annoying or whiny or kind of an asshole. Maybe I could read a um, read a novel about Puss in Boots in this situation, actually. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But, um, but otherwise, it's you get a little snapshot and you can use those awful characters to get far enough to make your message. Mm-hmm. And then that's about it.
1: Yeah, I would um, agree. Particularly with the Unlikable Characters thing. I, just, I don't think people have the patience for all unlikable characters for a really long time. And then by unlikable, I don't mean, like, bad people, because you can have likable bad characters. Yes. Just, like, shitty ones where you're just, like, you just suck. And my feelings about... And there's nothing thing that I like about you know, the experience of being in your head or yeah. observing your actions.
0: Which talking about, being in people's heads, is sort of into the last thing that I want to talk about, which is... Um... It's interesting how well she can get into some characters' heads and some characters' voices. Puss in Boots is a really great example where it's sort of, you can very much imagine him, like, telling you this story. Like, if, if, even if you don't go and read the collection, just go and read the first couple of pages of Puss in Boots. Mm-hmm. Just because it's this, like, a guy who is telling his own folk tale mm-hmm. about himself. He knows it's. He knows that this is a great adventure story. Like mm-hmm. he's standing on a table in a bar somewhere mm-hmm. and telling a group of rat people. Like that's mm-hmm. in my mind at least. I mean, he's a cat. But mm-hmm. the, well, one other thing I did want to talk about with the short story form is that you do manage to get these snapshots, mm-hmm. and several of the stories seem to abruptly end. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, 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 we're done. Okay, cool. And it helps with some of the ambiguities, and you're sort of left to work the story out. But there are also some which start very abruptly, and you're just, like, thrust into a world. The one that I was thinking of in particular... The one that I was thinking of in particular was uh, The Lady of the House of Love, Mm -hmm. which opens with... Oh, good God. She also uses some very long sentences. But it starts with, At last the revenants became so troublesome, the peasants abandoned the village, and it fell solely into the possession of subtle and vindictive inhabitants.
1: That sounds more like the end of a setup. Yeah. Rather than an opening line. You know, it's like, once upon a time, there was a kingdom in which this thing happened. At last, this thing happened. And that's where you, where we come in with this particular story.
0: Well, there is a school of writing that says that, like, you should start writing and then go back and delete your first chapter or your first few paragraphs or something. Maybe she did and she just didn't check. Mm, could be. So I think that touches on most of the main points that we want to talk about. I think the big question here is, why have we in the past few decades had so many of these sorts of stories which are subverting those original folk tales and fairy tales?
1: I think to answer that, you have to look at the purpose of these kinds of stories in human society. They are a form of social control and conditioning. They're meant to convey messages to children and adolescents about what their role in society is, and sort of the do's and don'ts of being safe in the world. As our world has changed dramatically, and particularly in the last 50 years, as the scope of a woman's role in society has been changing, I think it has become more necessary to explore alternative ways of characterizing the role of women in society, and also just what what society even means, and what it means to be safe, you know, what are the appropriate actions? Because, I mean, you think of fairy tales as something that teaches children not to go in the woods at night, teaches children and women to be like obedient and follow directions and all of these things, uh, orient their lives around a happy and advantageous marriage, like in a lot of these stories. But a lot of Of Things have changed in the world since then, um, since the points that most of these stories kind of came into the form that we really know them in. Does that make sense? Uh And so I think that they're like, folk tales have always challenged certain ideas. Like, there have always been types of stories that are like, don't be greedy, don't be unkind, listen to the beggar. Take care of the crone. She might be a powerful witch who can help you later. Also just
0: don't be a dick. Also
1: just, yeah, don't be a jerk. But for women, it's, you know, be virtuous, which means celibate, basically. Be sweet and humble. But those aren't the messages that people are getting as much anymore. We're now being encouraged by our society to be independent and seek our own destiny and... Assert our equality, particularly as women in our society, and also, but still to not be heartless. Mm -hmm. So, it I think has triggered looking back at some of these messages and some of these ideas and trying to retell them in a way that maybe also is more compassionate to some of the villains that are now in a more similar place that we are finding ourselves in as people and as women in society in particular. Yeah, I mean, essentially. Because times have changed, and so we're looking for the things that have guided us as we've developed to change with it. Yeah.
0: It's the thing of, like, if you go back and look at some of the Disney films, we go, is that something we want to teach our children anymore?
1: Right. Exactly. It's why Frozen and Brave are so much different than Snow White and Cinderella.
0: And Moana as well. Yeah. yeah. More stories about going out and being your own person and less stories about...
1: Wait, just wait
0: around. A guy will come along soon enough, don't worry.
1: Mm-hmm. There's one of the quotes that I had from from the first story from Bloody Chamber, li- literally page three. I was forced always to mimic surprise so that he would not be disappointed. Mm. Um, And then page 18, the presence that even when I thought myself most in love with him always subtly oppressed me. And so there's these ideas that if you're reading between the lines... If you're, if a woman now is trying who, with all of the messages of like, be independent, know what you want, make the decision based on what you want to do, whether or not what other people want you to do, looks at a lot of these stories in like their older forms, it would be a, a set, there would be a diminishing of like trying to make yourself small enough to fit into this role that someone else has made of being the damsel in distress who's waiting to be rescued you know, being the person who follows directions even when they don't make sense and it works out in the end because that's what a good girl is supposed to do. Whereas now in this, in those particular lines, there's this acknowledgement that those kinds of limited roles have always limited women's potential. And now we're allowed to say that and recognize it and encourage to recognize and push back against that.
2: Yeah. Cool. I'll go for that.
1: Do you have anything different to say in response to the big question? Like, why do you think we are revisiting these stories and retelling them and subverting them like this?
0: No, I mean, I think it's it's partially that just times have changed. I think partially it's, it's a reclamation. Mm-hmm. It, it's, as you say, like, I know. The people telling the stories have changed. The people who were able to put the stories down in written word mm-hmm. when they were first written down and popularized more, were largely men. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's I think it's switched and you get women telling the story.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and they have a different story to tell, shockingly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because like you have Wicked, which is actually a subversion of these stories, but it's written by a man, Gregory Maguire. But yeah. it is a similar reclamatory exercise of you have this story that has been being told for decades where there's this female villain. But if you think about it, no one thinks of themselves as the villain. Like, how can we figure out what would get this person to become perceived in the way you're seeing in this story you're familiar with? Yeah.
0: I've not read any of the Gregory Maguire stuff. I wonder... With this, I know Angela Carter definitely has something to say. Mm -hmm. Like, that's very much in the book. I wonder with things like Wicked, to what extent there's... It's a thought exercise mm. versus an intentional reclamation. That's fair. One of the things that I want to talk about later is Hyde, mm-hmm. where it's a retelling of Strange Case, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the point of view of Hyde. And that is a fascinating thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think it has some messages, but I don't think that they're messages of like...
2: Identity. Eh, we'll get into it.
0: Okay. Um, but I don't think it's that same sort of thing. Like, I think that you can make some interesting messages, but I don't think that that's... I don't think the recasting of the villain is serving the same purpose there um, as it is here.
1: In terms of, like, a reflection of social changes.
0: Yeah. It's more calling into question how society functions. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So I think that's a good answer for the big question. But I think the bigger question is, we clearly both have a favourite character. Who's the worst character in the book?
1: We should say our favourite character is the mother in Lady Chamber. She's also- oh.
0: I was... Yeah, the mother and Puss in Boots, it's a classic.
1: Ah, see, so do we have the same favourite character? I'd forgotten
0: about the mother from a moment She's there. awesome. She is. Gets less screen time, though.
1: She's still really cool and very well-characterised, both at the beginning and at the end.
0: Mm. Okay, well, they can tie for it. They're very different characters.
1: They are very different characters.
0: Who's the worst character?
1: I think the dad who loses his daughter in a game of cards and then, like, is continuing to like gamble and be really happy with the additional stuff that the tiger sends him in exchange for his daughter. Like that's pretty horrible. And then like doesn't really notice the difference when his daughter's replaced by an
0: automaton.
1: And he's the worst.
0: That has a music box in its ch- in its chest. Yeah. That plays a little tinkly melody all the time.
1: Yeah, like you've gotta be a pretty terrible and oblivious parent to not notice or care that your child has been replaced by an automaton, or even to, you know, lose her in a hand of cards to begin with. Uh, I think he's the worst. He stands stands out in my mind as the worst.
0: Yeah, he's the most fully characterized one. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's there's a couple of the beasts in the later stories that I think could be argued. Mm -hmm. The maid in the Lady of the House of Love, who just, like, goes and fetches the guys from the drinking fountain to Mm -hmm. feed to the vampire. Not a great person, not well-characterized, though. Mm-hmm. And just everyone in the Snow Child is not yeah, fantastic. Yeah, everyone in the Snow um, Child is terrible. But it's only two pages, so you yeah, yeah, get good sense of Yeah, it's them. only
1: two pages, and I don't know, it's... Yeah, they're terrible people, but they're not, like... They don't stand out as the worst because, as you say, they're not as well-characterized. The Earl King is also pretty bad, just, like, systematically preying upon young women and trapping them forever as birds in cages, that's pretty awful, too.
0: Yeah, I guess with the old king, you can argue it's his nature. He is, like, a he, mythical being. He is,
1: like, yeah, a, a crazy, like, god, force of nature thing. Bad,
0: but, like, I don't know, that there's something more, like...
1: He's not so much a person, I think is really yeah. what it is. He, he can't be the worst person because there's not a whole lot of evidence that he's a person.
0: Yeah. No, I I had forgotten about the dad until you said that, and then I was just like,
1: yeah, okay. Yeah, he sucks.
0: Hot
2: pick. Yep.
1: I mean, gotta say, the Duke and Bladychamp are also pretty terrible.
2: True, yes. Like,
1: courts and, like, wins over these beautiful creative women, tests their curiosity, which he chooses creative women, so he has to know they're going to have some curiosity of spirit, and then murders them. That's also pretty awful.
0: Yes, I mean, we should clarify. By saying that this one guy is the worst does not mean that, like, yeah. everyone else is ter- terrible. Yeah. And, like...
1: I think what makes him the worst for me is because, like, you have an obligation as a parent, that is clearly not being upheld here. Like, it's a dereliction of duty beyond even
0: the moral failing. It's a betrayal. Yes,
1: exactly. It's a betrayal of what he owes to his daughter.
0: Okay, let's move on to fun facts. Uh, I only have a couple for this week. So people might be familiar with a film called The Company of Wolves. Yeah, that rings a big bell. It's a 1984 gothic horror film has Angela Lansbury in it, because, man, she just gets everywhere. But it's actually based on a combination of the Company of Wolves, Wolf Alice and the Werewolf. It sort of takes aspects from all three of them. But Angela Carter worked on the screenplay. Oh, neat. So Angela Carter actually... Well, no, notably, she uh, was twice married. She did divorce one person, which may comment on some of it, I don't know. Angela Carter actually died quite young, at the age of 51. She had lung cancer so she died in 1992. Um, She published her first novel in 1966, which means that her creative career was 26 years. In that time, she published nine novels, um, five collections of short stories, and one that was published posthumously, three poetry collections, two dramatic works, five children's books, Four non-fiction books, including The Sadean Women and the Ideology of Pornography. Worked on two translations, two film adaptations, five radio plays, and worked on two things for television. Hmm. Very prolific. Mm-hmm. Doesn't my fun things.
1: Cool. I have one, it's just a definition that I thought was kind of very appropriate. In the Bloody Chamber, when the bride asks her husband what... The room is that she's not allowed to go into. He says it is his Enfer. I'm probably saying that wrong.
0: I'd say Enfer.
1: His Enfer, which means, which I'm probably saying wrong since it's a French word, which means literally hell, like inferno, but it also means um, a dangerous or pornographic collection, usually of books. Uh, I just thought that was very appropriate for the story.
0: Yeah. Well, there is, like, the pornographic book that he has in there somewhere as well. Not
1: in... It's not in the not actual in the room that has his dead wives in it. Yeah. It's, like, in his library, one of the... She pulls up off a book that doesn't have a title, and it's a pornographic book. And he comes in and is, like, teasing her about having found it. And she asks him about the room, and he says it's his or whatever you whatever you call it and so it's funny because he is in some ways referring he they're in the library that has his actual pornographic books but it also kind of gets at the idea that is very much alluded to that like he gets sexual gratification from tormenting and torturing and killing his wives so it the room where their dead bodies are also is sort of his horrible dangerous pornographic collection Museums and like national libraries and stuff will often have a collection like this
2: Um. of
1: like, it's like they're like banned books and pornographic works and manuscripts and things. So that's kind of neat. But I just thought that was a fun fact.
0: I think that we do need to give a general shout out to Angela Carter's vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a decent quantity of me Googling words to remember what they meant. There was a couple of times that she slipped into the, maybe you learned this word and you just wanted to use it as much as possible. Mm. Um, I did not before now know what a catafalque or catafalque was.
1: I have seen that word before, but I forget what it means. It's
0: a stand you put a coffin on. Or like a raised up coffin type thing. That makes sense. I didn't have much use for that word until I read this book. Yeah. It appears in more than one story. So mm. It's in Bloody Chamber and in Lady of the House of Love. Mm. Anyway, any other fun facts? Nope, that was it. Okay. Once again, you can find our social media in our show notes, or you can just search us online. We actually come up. The website comes up and everything is great. You can also email us at at unramblingspodcast.gmail.com and tell us if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or anything else you have.
1: Oh, in case you haven't looked us up on social media, as you may have guessed, I'm not going to be at JordanCon this year. Because it's been cancelled due to obvious reasons, you know, coronavirus uh, cancellations. Um, so if you are looking forward to meeting slash talking with me at that event, sorry. But you're welcome to email us or message us about podcasts and things that you find interesting or want to ask about.
0: And she will be there next year, so if you really plan ahead...
1: <laughs> Maybe if you read the series really fast over the next year, you can go with me. <laughs>
0: how much time I spend quarantined. quarantine. Yeah. Once again, please do rate and review us wherever you listen. It does help other people to find the show. Also, tell your friends about us. We bully them into listening to us. We're charming and lovely, really. Um, and on that note, I think we should probably leave it there.
2: Thank you for listening to Unravelings. We hope that you will join us next week. And it plays
0: in some of that. <laughs> Hi, Shadow. Can we help you? Hey. It is probably getting on towards your lunchtime. You're probably right. Do you think you can be quiet for like twenty minutes? Let's just chill out there.